Well, thank you, Pastor Barlow, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's great to see you. What a wonderful crowd, and uh, I'm so delighted that you're here. I commend you for uh, making this conference a priority and for choosing to come and be here. As I was uh, preparing and mentally just getting ready for our time together and uh, ha- knowing I had the privilege of being the leadoff speaker in track one, I, I couldn't help but reflect about what was what was what my life was like when I was sitting where you are right now. And uh, that was 46 years ago for you young people. That's right after I got back from the Civil War. And uh, <laughs> at that point in time, uh, I had been raised in a Christian home. I was saved at the age of 10, grew up in a Bible-believing uh, Baptist church. After high school graduation, I attended Cedarville University, a Christian liberal arts college in Ohio, whose motto is for the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. After graduation from there, I attended Grace Theological Seminary and went on to Lake Indiana, which was a school that was one of the top two seminaries in the country at that point, and it was known for its commitment to study in the original languages, systematic theology, and expository preaching. While I was in seminary, I had the opportunity of doing an internship under David Jeremiah, the David Jeremiah, and uh, at a point in time where he was pastoring his first church uh, in Ohio, back in Indiana. And through his influence, I was later called to be the pastor of a church across town that had been through two splits because they had problems which were not handled biblically. And you know, when you don't handle problems biblically, it just leads to more problems. If those aren't handled biblically, it just leads to more problems. And a church of 120 or so had dwindled to where they had 17 voting members left. And in a great act of faith one night, they just said, look, we want our church to survive. And they voted to surrender their autonomy, place themselves temporarily under Pastor Jeremiah's leadership, and just do whatever he said to do. Because what they had been trying to do wasn't working. And uh, <clears throat> in, I was one of the few guys, that, three or four guys, that he sent over there to preach. And for me as a seminary student, it was a great thing for me to preach to real live sinners instead of to a camera in my homiletics class. And uh, they gave me an honorarium, which of course was wonderful as a student. And uh, through a number of circumstances, they called me to be their pastor. I think what really happened is they got to loving my wife and they figured if we want to keep Cindy, we got to hire Randy. So uh, they hired me as their pastor. I was so excited. I've been headed toward vocational ministry since I was 14 years old. And here I am, I'm getting paid to study the Bible and to go talk to people about Jesus and visit people in the hospital and so forth and preach and teach the Bible. And it was a a happy experience for Cindy and me. And our oldest son, our uh, oldest child, our son Jim, was born four days after I became a pastor. So though our church was small, we're doing our part to contribute to growth. And... uh, uh, one of my three deacons confided in me that most of his life he had been dependent upon psychotropic drugs to handle his emotional ups and downs. And he told me they're expensive, I don't like the side effects, and they haven't really solved my problems. And he asked me, would you help me learn how to handle life without the, the pills? And I did my best and failed. And uh, the youngest couple, our church had averaged 38 in Sunday school the two months before I got there. And the youngest couple in our church had been married about 18 months by the time I got there. And their marriage is already in trouble. And I did my best to help them. 
and uh, failed, and they got a divorce. And so two years into a pastorate, it became evident to me that though I can preach, I can teach, I can marry, I can bury, I can visit in the hospital, and I can help people if they've got a spiritual sniffle. But if they've got much more than that, while I'm willing to get down into the ditches and help people, once I get there, I don't have any answers. That's what prompted me to drive two hours, two and a half hours one way to Valparaiso, Indiana, and to sit through a training program that went 11 Mondays. And for 11 Mondays, I drove two and a half hours one way to get the kind of stuff you're getting. And in the first day, I still remember this, the first day we had classes and instruction in the morning, and then we had a lunch, and we talked about some cases. But in the afternoon and evening, the way that program was set up, we set in on actual live counseling watching our instructors helping people that came in from the surrounding area. And my first case that I observed was with a medical doctor named Dr. Bob Smith, <clears throat> one of the real leaders in biblical counseling. And uh, the couple that came in, they had a boatload of trouble. I mean, it's just I'm sitting there at the end of the table as he's gathering data from them wondering, Doc, please don't collapse of a heart attack because I have no idea what to do if you can't finish this session. And uh, he gathered information from them for probably 45, 50 minutes or so. And then I watched Dr. Smith reach up and take his King James Version, Thompson Chain Reference Bible, and open it. And in effect, what I saw him do was take the sword of the Spirit out of the sheath and use it ministering to those people in a way that gave them hope, that gave them direction. And week by week as I watched him, I saw a couple with a boatload of trouble that, from my perspective, it was impossible to help them. I saw their lives transformed by the grace of God. And what I witnessed in that first day lit a fire in me to do what I saw Doc Smith doing that has never gone out. And by God's grace, all of us that are teaching you, not just this weekend, but in the future, we're hoping to light the same kind of fire in you. And my prediction is that if you'll listen carefully, you're going to leave tomorrow loving Jesus more, being more thankful for your Bible and more determined to read it and study it and meditate on it and memorize it than ever before, and more confident that you can help people using the Bible. That's our goal. So uh, with that in mind, I'd like to force to pray just one more time. Would you bow with me, please? Oh, Heavenly Father, would you help us now each to do our best? Help me to communicate your word in a clear, precise manner that's engaging, that makes it easy for these dear people to listen. And I pray for them that you'd help them to listen carefully to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And now, Father, would you please open thou our eyes that we may behold wonderful truths from thy law. In Christ's name, amen. All right, please find your notes that are entitled, What is it that makes biblical counseling unique? <clears throat> Let's uh, start with these uh, introductory considerations. First of all, we just need to address this matter. The fact is that everyone is a counselor. I say that because undoubtedly there's some of you sitting here who would say, it's usually the men that say it, well, I'm not a counselor, I'm just here, my, my wife's the counselor, I'm the chauffeur. And uh, I want to differ with all of you who would say something like, I'm not a counselor. The fact is, you are a counselor. Let me, let me make that point. This is really critical 
for this session and for all the ones that are going to come. How many of you are parents? Do you ever tell anybody how to think or act? <laughs> Let me ask this. How many of you are friends? You got a friend? Do you ever tell somebody how to think or what they ought to do? Here's one. How many of you are wives? Do you ever tell somebody how they ought to think or act? Well, the fact is, we all give counsel. We all give advice, all right? And we acknowledge that for many of us, the kind of advice we're giving is what we would call informal counseling. You know, that's what we would be doing with our children at times with our spouse or our friends and so forth. But many of you are in positions where you do or want to do formal counseling that's scheduled and where people are coming purposely to talk about problems and getting biblical solutions and so forth. But the fact is, all of us are counselors. We're all giving advice. Secondly, all of us need to recognize that all of the counsel or the advice we give people grows out of our worldview. Now, the term worldview is a a phrase or a word that's become popular in the last 20 years or so. And basically what it means is worldview is how you look at life and how you interpret what's happening to you and what's happening around you. Worldview is the lens through which you look at life and interpret life. The fact is, we all have a worldview, and the advice we give grows out of that worldview. Third, some beliefs become life and counsel-changing commitments. Not everything we believe is life and counsel-changing, but some things are. For example, some things that are not life and uh, life changing is like when my wife and I are traveling, if we're going to stop at a fast food restaurant, for her, uh, it's Arby's. If I'm traveling by myself, for me, it's either going to be Firehouse Subs or Wendy's. All right? We just got different views on where we want to stop and eat lunch at a fast food place. But that doesn't really change our lives. But there's other things that we hold true. And particularly as Christians, it absolutely changes how we interpret what's happening in life and the advice we give to people that grows out of that. That's going to be the focus of our uh, study in, in this session. So let's think about what is biblical counseling. Let me give you two or three definitions to ponder. When we talk about biblical counseling, we mean it's a Christian trying to help someone struggling with the problems of life and living using the Bible. So biblical counseling involves Christians caring for somebody. They're trying to help them. It could be anger, fear, worry, depression, rebellious teenagers, unresponsive husband. or I mean, it could be all kinds of things. But it's basically a Christian trying to help somebody with the problems they're facing using the Bible. Or here's another definition. Biblical counseling is the private compassionate, intensive ministry of the word. Now, let's unpack those those phrases. First of all, it's private. And by that, I mean the counseling we do usually takes place in an office or at a kitchen table, and we're talking one-on-one or maybe one person with two people or maybe a husband and wife talking to another husband and wife. Occasionally, it's one counselor talking to parents with some couple children present but it it tends to be private. Second, it's compassionate. In other words, the reasons we do this kind of ministry is because we care for people, 
and our care for people grows out of our love for Christ. Christ said the first great commandment is that you love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. And if you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, then one of the outgrowths of that is you love people. ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, you know, has close probably 2,400 members right now around the world. And in, in my knowledge, there's just very few of them that charge for their counseling. Almost all of us are offering our counseling free of charge as a ministry of our church or as a ministry of the organization we're serving under. And it just grows out of our love for God and our, our willingness to spend time talking to people and helping them get answers from God's Word. It's compassionate. We do it not for the dollar sign. We do it because we love them and we care for people. Then notice also that it's the intensive ministry of the Word. By that I mean when we talk about biblical counseling, we're talking about ministering the Word of God to people precisely where they need it the most right now. Let me draw a contrast between biblical counseling and the preaching and teaching of the Word. I'm going to have the privilege of ministering the Word of God here on, on Sunday morning. And during Sunday morning, when I stand up to preach in this room, I've got one message and everybody gets the same thing. The brand new Christian sitting over here is going to hear the same thing that a person who's walked with Christ for 50 or 60 years over here is going to get. That's called general discipleship. Okay? And God has promised to bless the preaching and teaching of his word through the general discipleship. So any of you, when you teach a Sunday school class or lead a youth group or a ladies' Bible study, you got one lesson, everybody gets the same thing, general discipleship. Okay? It's important. Biblical counseling is not general discipleship. Biblical counseling is intensive discipleship. Biblical counseling involves the counselor, the Christian, thinking about the individual that's coming to them and about their circumstances. And basically the question we have to think about and answer is, what page of the Bible has what they need to hear the most right now? It's intensive. It's focused on them and their current set of circumstances. It's the private, compassionate, intensive ministry of the Word of God. That's what we mean when we talk about biblical counseling. Or here's a third definition. Biblical counseling, it's a Christian who needs to grow and change, humbly and lovingly trying to help someone else who needs to grow and change so that God gets the glory. In God's infinite wisdom, for some reason, somehow, (laughs) he's chosen to use people like me and like you who don't have our act all together to help other people who don't have their act all together so that he gets the glory. That's what biblical counseling is. So when you hear that phrase being used, keep referring back to these definitions and keep these in mind. Now, a moment ago, I was talking to you about the fact that the worldview that we have, the beliefs that we have, some of them change our lives, change our worldview, and they certainly change the kind of counsel we give. So I want to talk with you about some of the foundational beliefs that shape both our view of biblical counseling, but they also shape our practice of counseling. In other words, this is not just how we think about the issue of counseling or biblical counseling. This shapes how we do it and why we do it and so forth. And there are six foundational beliefs that I trust that you will embrace. 
The first one is a commitment to the inerrancy of the scriptures. A commitment to the inerrancy of the scriptures. By the word inerrant, we mean that the Bible is without error. We believe that because of verses like 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, which says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So that passage and others lead us to understand that this is God's Word. In Christian shorthand, we refer to it as the Word, but we believe that this is God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16, the first part of it says, all Scripture is inspired by God. The word translated inspired, the Greek word means it's breathed out by God. So while many people would say that the Bible is the greatest piece of literature that's ever been written, it's not, it's not, it is the greatest piece of literature, but it's not human literature. This is God's word that's been delivered to us. This is a significant issue because in biblical counseling, this answers the question, what is our authority? And, you know, basic question that all of us need to consider when we think about counseling and people coming to us. I mean, just put simply, the question is this. Why should anybody listen to you? Why should anybody do what you say? Why should anybody do what I say or suggest? Well, the answer can't be on our heritage or on our education or our degrees because we all know people that, that you can be old and be a fool, you can be well-educated and be a fool. Um, we say, the only reason you'd want to listen to me is because I know the Bible a bit more than you do and can help you think about how to apply it to your life. One of the things that I've learned to do in my counseling procedures is that usually in session two, when I'm beginning to teach uh, the counselees and chart a plan forward, for how we're going to address their problems, oftentimes I will say to them, as we're moving along, as I'm giving you advice on how to address these problems that you told me about in our first get-together, if, if at any time you're not sure where I'm getting that advice or where that's growing out of the Bible, well, just raise your hand and stop me. Because if I can't show you chapter and verse or show you a, a person in the Bible or an illustration from a principle in the Scripture or uh, one of the... Uh, individuals in the scripture. If I can't show you where my advice is growing out of an understanding and application of the scripture, then we just need to acknowledge this is just Randy's advice. And, you know, it may be helpful in some, but you need to understand it's not on the, the level of the authority of the word of God. It answers the question, what is our authority? And as biblical counselor, our authority comes back to the fact that we believe that this book is totally reliable because its author is perfect. And God's word reflects his character. Holy Spirit bore men along. It was breathed out by God. And his word reflects his character. Here's a second commitment. <clears throat> Biblical counselors also have a commitment to the sufficiency of Christ and the scriptures. A commitment to the sufficiency of Christ and the scriptures. Think with me about 2 Peter 1.3. It says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness 
through the true knowledge of him who's called you by his own glory and excellence. That's a great verse for you to get underlined in your Bible a little later and meditate on that. I want to draw your attention to the, the first couple of lines there. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So what that passage is teaching is that the Bible was given to us by God to teach us how to handle life. And that's what the Bible, the Bible claims to be. All that we need to know how to think, how to act, what our motives should be, living in our day and time. <clears throat> and we're talking about the matter of the sufficiency of Christ. And I will say to all of you, as you pursue this matter of studying biblical counseling, one of the issues that every one of you is going to have to grapple with, if you haven't done it yet, is do I believe that the Bible is sufficient for life and godliness in our day and time? Or do I, yeah, we need the Bible, but do we need the Bible plus a little bit of Freud, a little bit of Maslow, a little bit of Jung, maybe a little bit of Dr. Phil, maybe some Oprah thrown in. Or, or here, here's another way to think about it. <clears throat> Is your Bible thick enough? Do you have everything you need for life and godliness? Or do you need a Bible a little, needs a little bit more than what's here? This is a huge issue, and you'll have to grapple with it. Here's uh, something that uh, one of the former board members of NANC, when I was leading that organization, uh, Dr. David Pallison, wrote. He's now with the Lord. He, he wrote this. Biblical or neuthetic counseling was founded on the confidence that God has spoken comprehensively about and to human beings. The Bible, his word, teaches the truth. Biblical truth and methods are to be pursued and promoted in counseling. An integrationist attempts to wed secular psychology to conservative Christianity. An integrationist believes that the scriptures are not comprehensively sufficient, that the Bible is in some essential way deficient for understanding and changing people. He believes that the church, therefore, needs the systematic input from the social sciences. Integrationists aim to import the intellectual contents and psychotherapeutic practices of psychology into their counseling in a way that they think is consistent with biblical faith. Now, <clears throat> it might be helpful if I uh, make this distinction for you. During the course of the teaching, you're going to hear, this not just this weekend, but in future weekends, you're going to observe, if you're careful, that uh, the, the speakers are going to be talking and identifying themselves as biblical counselors. So let me just talk to you about where that is on the spectrum of counseling today. I would say, oh, let's put over here, we would call secular counselors. And this would be, you know, largely unbelievers who have been trained in the world's theories, the world's practices. And today, there are over 250 distinct philosophies of counseling that are being taught around the world. There is huge diversity. There is absolutely no diversity, excuse me, there's no unity among non-believers about how best to help people solve the problems of life and living. At the other extreme are those of us who identify ourselves as biblical counselors. And we think the Bible, God has spoken uh, comprehensively, 
And we have everything we need for life and godliness. All right? In between these two extremes is a group called Christian Integrationist. And this would be a group of people who would profess faith in Christ and would say that the Bible is important. They might even say the Bible is without error. But oftentimes they've been trained in the world's theories, the world's practices, or they've encountered circumstances where they didn't find answers in the Bible. And so they believe that we need to draw some things from the world. And they try to to take what the Bible says and some of the, the best of man's wisdom as they interpret it and try to integrate them. Okay? And I will just say to you, anytime you try to integrate man's wisdom with God's wisdom, the influence of God's wisdom is always diminished. It is always diminished. Let, let me try to illustrate it this way. Uh, one of my favorite drinks uh, right now is Diet Coke. And so let's say at one of the breaks, I go down to the refreshment area, and I, they happen to have a Diet Coke, and there's a nice clear glass, and I pour my Diet Coke into it, and then I get to talking with somebody, and uh, when I go to take a sip, it's just not very cool anymore. But I, I look at it, and it's got that beautiful, dark, brown, inviting color and everything. And someone says, hey, let me get a couple uh, ice cubes for you. And they put two or three ice cubes in it. Then I get yakking with somebody else. And I come back about 10 minutes later to my integrated Diet Coke. It doesn't look the same. And it doesn't taste the same either. Well, it's one thing to integrate your soft drinks with ice. It's completely different when you try to take man's wisdom and use that on how to interpret what's happening with life in your case. And I just want to say, uh, undoubtedly, there's a number of you here who've been trained in the world's theories, the world's practices. And, and in my experience, many of the people who sought secular training and counseling did it because they wanted to help people. And at that point in their life, that they thought that was the best way or the only way to, to learn how to do it. But we're finding today all across America that people that have been trained in the world's theories and the world's practices are acknowledging the emptiness, the empty cisterns that hold no water and are turning to training like this. So if you're one of those who are you're here just wondering and searching, I'd love to talk with you about it. I'm glad that you're here. We're talking about the sufficiency of the Scripture. Let me go, let me go further. Think with me about this well-known verse. This is a passage of Scripture that's used in most of us when we're trying to disciple a brand-new believer, and we're wanting the brand-new believer to understand that the Bible is the Word of God and so forth. So we'll use 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which is a legitimate way to use it. What I want you to consider right now is I want you to notice what the Bible says about itself and the ways that the Bible is profitable. Look at the Scripture. All Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now let me just walk you through those briefly. The Bible says about itself that first of all, it's good for teaching. So as a counselor, as counselors in training, let me just have you think about this. Let me just pick, just pick an issue related to life and living. 
anger, fear, worry, financial distress, financial prosperity, temptation, addiction to porn, addiction to alcohol, uh, anxiety, rebellious teenagers, uh, husbands that are jerks, um, unfaithful wives, loneliness. Just pick an issue. Just pick an issue. And you can go to the Bible, and if you know where to look, and use some Bible study tools, you can find answers in every one of those that will get you headed in the right direction on how to think about every one of those issues. That's what, it's what the Bible means. It will get you headed in the right direction on how to think or how to conduct yourself in a particular area. But more than that, you notice that the Bible says it's good for reproof. <clears throat> what The word that's used there is very precise. It means that the Bible will do more than tell you you're wrong. The Bible will do that. It'll tell you you're wrong. But this particular word means the Bible will do more than just tell you you're wrong. The Bible will bring people to the point where they will admit they are wrong. That's what it means to reprove somebody, to bring them to the point of repentance. In counseling, that's a huge issue. In parenting, that's a huge issue, right, with our kids. With all of us, that's a huge issue. Coming to the point where we'll say, woe is me. The Bible will bring you to a point of, of uh, conviction. But notice the next one. The Bible is good for correction. I love this one. It's so neat. The word translated there means that the Bible is good to make to stand up again that which has been knocked down. What brings most people in for counseling is that they're knocked down in some area of life. They're knocked down in their personal morals. They're knocked down in their husband-wife relationship. They're knocked down in parent-child. They're knocked down in their finances. They're knocked down somehow. Oftentimes, they're knocked down in many areas at one time. And the Bible is good to take people that are knocked down in life and through God's work and through justification and progressive sanctification to help people that have been knocked down to stand up again. In fact, every time I talk about that, I wish we had time. We never do. I just wish we had time because I'll predict that all across this room, there are people who, if given the opportunity to say, that was me. That was me a few years ago. I mean, I was a mess and our marriage was a disaster and we started going to church or our friend at work witnessed to us or our neighbor invited us to a Bible study and somebody began working with us and we got saved and we've been growing and here we are now. We're at a counseling conference because we want to help other people. That's what the Bible does for people. It takes people who've been knocked down in life and helps them to grow, to stand up. But notice, that's not all of it. The Bible says about itself that it's also good for training in righteousness, meaning that the Bible will teach us how to discipline our thinking, discipline our behavior, so that the future of our life can be different than the past of our life. We can learn how to discipline our thinking, discipline our behavior, discipline our motives, so that the future of our lives can be different than the past of our lives. I love saying to counselees, oftentimes in session one or session two, if you'll come back and let me have the privilege of working with you and explaining the word of God, and if you will hear and obey the word of God, I can assure you that the future of your life can be significantly different than the past of your life that you've been telling me about. And I don't say that because I think I'm an all-fired hot counselor. I say that because I believe that the Bible is the living and active word of God that is good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God, so that the biblical counselor is equipped for every good work. 
I think it was Warren Wearsby that summarized the ver- these words I've been talking about by saying this. The Bible is good to tell us what's right, what's not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. Now think about it. That covers the waterfront in counseling. And my brothers and sisters, listen to me. If your Bible is good to do those things, then how in the world is Freud going to add something to strengthen it? What's Adler going to do? What's Maslow going to do to strengthen that? We don't need more of man's wisdom. We need to understand God's wisdom more thoroughly and how to minister it to people that are hurting. Well, uh, I said a moment ago that this is an issue that you're going to have to grapple with. And uh, I want to expand that and say this is an issue that your church is going to have to grapple with probably because um, in most churches that take a real serious interest in biblical counseling, they inevitably run up against people that are committed to one degree or another to integrationist-type counseling. And it's not just individuals, and it's not just churches, but denominations have to grapple with this these days. And uh, years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention took a stab at addressing this in a way that I thought was very commendable. Let me just share this. And it's in your notes. What I'd like you to do, just watch the screen right now. I think that'll be more beneficial to you. If you just watch the screen and you can read this for yourselves later. Okay, so here we go. Whereas Southern Baptists are committed to the authority, the sufficiency, and the relevance of the Bible, and whereas the Bible teaches that human beings are created in the image of God, made by Him, like Him, and for Him, and that because of sinful rebellion against their Creator, our entire being suffers from sin's corruption. And whereas all aspects of our lives, including our spiritual, moral, and psychological conditions, are to be informed and governed by the application and obedience to the Holy Scriptures, and whereas in this therapeutic culture, physicians and counselors often ignore human sin and its effects, they neglect our most fundamental human and spiritual needs, and therefore misunderstand our condition, mistreat our problems, and sometimes unintentionally do more harm than good. And whereas an uncritical acceptance of the therapeutic culture too often has infected our pulpits, our ministries, and our counseling. And whereas our churches have often neglected our God-ordained responsibility for the care and cure of souls, becoming practically ineffective, both marginalizing ourselves from the culture and being marginalized by the mental health establishment. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the messengers of Southern Baptist Convention meeting in St. Louis 2002 affirm Christian counseling that relies upon the Word of God rather than theories that are rooted in a defective understanding of human nature. And be it further resolved that we affirm that any method worthy of the name Christian counseling must address the root of our problems and reveal the crux of God's solution, the redemptive work of Christ, and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, 
by which the depths of sin and the fullness of grace are made known. And be it further resolved that while we affirm that there are real conditions that warrant legitimate medical treatment, we reject the assumptions of the therapeutic culture that offers a pharmacological solution for every human problem. And be it finally resolved that we call on Southern Baptist and our churches to reclaim practical biblical wisdom, Christ-centered counseling, and the restorative ministry of the care and cure of souls. And that'd be a great opportunity for a whole bunch of amens. We're talking about the sufficiency of the Scripture. This is important because it answers the question, who or what is our guide? You've got to settle that personally. What's your guide going to be? The Scripture alone or the Scripture plus man's wisdom? Well, there's a third commitment that uh, influences not just our view of counseling but our practice of counseling, and that's a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, Jesus Christ says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, uh, this is a favorite passage among biblical counselors in trying to give hope to people and direction to people in session number one, because many of the people, if not, if not most, or seems like all, When they come for counseling, they're weary. They're heavy laden. And the good news is Jesus Christ says, Come to me, turn to me, my ways, my teaching, and you will find rest. But he talks about a yoke. That means there's some work to be done. There's some responsibilities in being a follower of Christ. He says, Take my yoke and learn. And then he says, I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. We're trying to answer the question, we have a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is also talked about in the the epistles. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Notice he says, I gave to you as of first importance. In other words, a person's relationship with Jesus Christ is of first importance. Uh, In my own experience, I have found that counseling is a wonderful evangelistic opportunity. We talk to people about Christ. And I would say to you that this is important because it answers the question, what is our focus? Biblical counseling is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ his place in a person's life and their thinking, their behavior, um, their motivations. And counseling that does not make much of Christ is not Christian counseling. It's certainly not biblical counseling. There's a fourth commitment, and that is because of our commitment to what we've seen so far, the inerrancy of the Scripture, sufficiency of Scripture, our commitment to the preeminence of Christ. Number four, we have a commitment to making disciples of Christ. Now here's a passage that many of you are familiar with. 
Matthew 28, 18 to 20. We typically call it the Great Commission passage. Think with me about it in relation to what we're talking about tonight. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want to draw your attention to the, the first line in verse 19 at the top of the slide. Christ said, Go, therefore, and make disciples. The word translated disciple means a learner, a student. It's talking about a long-term follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is important for us because we need to understand that the Great Commission is not that you get professions of faith. The Great Commission is not that you try to get as many notches on your gospel gun as you can. Having people make a profession of faith is important. But that's not the goal. The goal is that they become a disciple, a long-term follower of Christ. Okay? Now, look at the part of verse 20. It would help you if I clicked it. There you go. Look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So part of disciple-making is presenting to an unsaved person the gospel, helping them to understand the claims of Christ, our need for a Savior, uh, the doctrine of sin and our uh, depravity and so forth, what what God did through Christ on the, the cross for us to make salvation possible for us, God calling people to himself. But people need to understand it's not just a matter of making a profession and becoming a, a professed Christ follower, but then following him and our responsibility as leaders in churches and as um, more mature Christians is, we're to be teaching them to observe all that he commanded. Now notice this. He didn't, teach, he didn't say, teach them to know. He said, teach them to observe. Uh, <clears throat> I've, over the years, uh, I've done a few thousand counseling sessions, and the largest demographic in my counseling experience has been husband-wife counseling, marital counseling. And one of the questions I learned to ask decades ago that's been so fruitful, in session one, after I've spent 45, 50 minutes or so gathering information from the, the, uh, the couple in front of me, <clears throat> and most of the people who've come to me for counseling are professing Christians. Not all, but most have been. And with those who profess faith in Christ, after I've gathered the data, I ask, I ask this question. These problems that you've been telling me about, are these due primarily to your uh, ignorance of what the Bible says on, for example, the role of the husband, role of the wife, communication, finance, parenting, whatever the problems were. Is it due to, are these problems due primarily to your failure to understand what the Bible teaches in these key areas, or are these problems due primarily to your fail, failure to obey what you know the Bible teaches? And I would say in 85% of the case, the couples is, respond quickly by saying, oh, Our problems are due to our failure to obey. What's lacking in many of our ministries is not a failure to teach the Bible. We're failing to teach people how to observe it, how to do it, how to put it into practice. That's so many times what counseling is all about. We're helping people close the gap between what they know and how they're living in a way that's pleasing and honoring to God. 
Well, this is significant because it answers the question in counseling, what is our God-given assignment? And our God-given assignment in counseling is to make stronger disciples. One of the greatest, most satisfying compliments that I can hear from somebody when I graduate them from counseling is for them to say to me, Randy, thank you so much for what you, the time you spent with us. Our marriage is in such a better shape than it was when we came in. You've really helped us. But I just want you to know, I, I am so, I've never been on fire for Christ. I've never been a stronger Christian. I've never been a more consistent Christian in my life than I am right now. That's what we want to hear. We just didn't help fix an area of life. We want them to grow in godliness, to become a stronger disciple, a stronger follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is what we're after. That's our assignment. And counseling that does not contribute to people becoming a stronger follower of Christ is not biblical counseling. Well, let's move on. Number five, we have a commitment to the kind of change talked about in the Scriptures. Kind of change talked about in the Scriptures. Let me illustrate that by pointing out these two verses to you. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 says... Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. The way these verses are put together, it's not talking about people who've committed the individual sins on this. It's talking about people who have lifestyles of committing these kinds of sins. So, for example... Um, he's saying that uh, when he talks about drunkards, he's not talking about a person who got smashed at last year's New Year's Eve party. He's talking about somebody who's, who's consumed alcohol so much, become drunk so frequently, that they're now known as a drunkard. All right? Uh, you don't become known as an adulterer because you were unfaithful to your spouse one time. You become known as an adulterer when that's happened multiple times. You don't become known as a homosexual when there's been one homosexual uh, contact. You become known as a homosexual when that kind of a lifestyle has been a pattern for a period of time. So this is talking about repeated sins in a given area. It's talking about what our culture calls addictive behavior. All right? And our culture has no real answers for addictive behavior. Um, Maybe I'll get to talk about that at another time, but our culture does not have answers for that. So here's what I want you to see. He goes through this list of addictive behaviors, repeated sins in these areas, and here's the next verse. And such were some of you, but not anymore. But you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. What these verses are teaching us is that the the solution to addictive behaviors to patterns of sin, is justification. A person being genuinely born again by the Spirit of God and sanctification, progressive sanctification, growing and changing to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll have further teaching on on that matter later this weekend. We're talking about the kind of change talked about in the Bible. Here's another verse that talks about this, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which has been corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Biblical counseling is involved in helping people to put off old ways of thinking and acting. That's the old self. 
to put on new ways of thinking and acting as a result of changed thinking, changed heart, an inner man change. The outer man change is an outgrowth of the inner man change. That's the kind of change that biblical counseling is involved with. This answers the very important question, what is your goal? Our goal is never that is never just that somebody's marriage be better. Our goal is never that there's more harmony in the home with the parents and the kids alone. Our goal is that people will be transformed from the inside out, that they'll view their circumstances, view the participants in their struggles differently, and even view themselves in a more biblical way. Well, these five that I've talked about lead to the sixth one. And that is, biblical counseling is marked by a commitment to loving our neighbor. In Matthew 22, 36 to 40, we have this significant passage. Christ is speaking. A person goes to him and says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he, Christ, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. It's our love for God that prompts us as individuals to be willing to spend time with people hearing about their difficulty and help them to solve it. It's a collective group of believers, love for God, that prompts them to organize and formalize their church's counseling ministry and to offer counseling to the community free of charge. In John 13, Jesus Christ said to his disciples, this is one of his last formal teaching times before he's betrayed and then crucified, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. So it's not just our love for God, but it's our love for each other in the fellow body of Christ. This is significant. Our love for God being translated into a way that other people can see and recognize. It's significant because it answers the question, for what should we be known? You know, uh, these days churches can be known for a lot of things. Some churches are known for their beautiful buildings. Uh, for their worship band, for their youth group, for the beautiful nursery, um, for the beautiful stained glass windows. Um, Probably the saddest thing is there's lots of churches, they aren't known for anything. A lot of churches could close and nobody in their community would even notice until they saw a for sale sign out front. Well, I want to encourage you to think about What could be done in the future to set the stage that your church becomes known as the church in your community where people will care enough to sit down and listen to you if you've got problems? And they'll be willing to help you get answers from the Word of God. They won't even charge you for it. After your insurance runs out on your other counseling and that counselor won't meet with you anymore, well, you ought to go to come to my church. And make it your goal that we're known as the church that loves people enough to spend time with them. Well, let me just conclude with this. I've talked to you about some commitments and the answers 
that they lead us to. Our commitment to the inerrancy of the Scripture leads us to answer the question, what is your authority? Our commitment to the sufficiency of the Scripture answers the question, what is your guide in counseling? Our commitment to the gospel answers the question, what is your focus? Our commitment to uh, discipleship answers the question, what is your assignment? Our commitment to the kind of change that the Bible talks about answers the question, what is your goal? And our commitment to loving our neighbor answers the question, for what do we want to be known? So in conclusion, I'd say these two things. These six commitments, when lived out, will lead to a godly Christian being a fruitful people helper, regardless of age, regardless of education, and regardless of formal training and biblical counseling. I'm assuming many of you got fruitful counseling ministries already before you came. This counseling training will probably help you to be even more effective. But for those of you that are young, that don't have formal training, if you know the Bible and you're walking with Christ and you're willing to sit and meet with people and follow some of the the, the procedures and methodologies that we're going to teach you, you can have a very effective counseling ministry. Here's the other thing I want to say. Biblical counselors are the only ones who sing our view of counseling. <clears throat> one of my favorite worship choruses right now is the one, uh, you're familiar with it probably, All I Have is Christ. Listen to these words as biblical counselors. I once was lost in darkest night, yet I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore all the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. We sing our view of counseling. Well, i got to stop. Let me just share some resources with you. There's a wonderful bookstore down the hallway here. I'd encourage you to spend as much money as you can with a clear conscience. <laughs> and uh, if you want some help, I love helping people buy books. So uh, catch me and I'll... Here's, here's some I draw your attention to. Christ-centered biblical counseling. And Scripture and Counseling uh, were both books written by authors from the Biblical Counseling Coalition. I've got chapters in each of those books. Highly recommend them. And then uh, I draw your attention to, to these two books, Counseling, How to Counsel Biblically, by, edited by John MacArthur. It's just excellent. And then the book on the right, Seeing with New Eyes, written by David Pallison, who had that quotation I used earlier. It's just excellent. It can be so very, very helpful to you. All right, we're on schedule, almost, 
and you have a break, you need to be back in your seats at 6.15. Pastor Terry Enns is going to teach you. You're going to love that session. Enjoy your break.